This morning's sermon will be from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verses 1 through 25. Luke 1, starting at verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty— According to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call him John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as, as we come before you this morning, may we turn our hearts towards you that we may fully grasp this good news that you are proclaiming through your Holy Spirit, through your word, and through your servant, Pastor Eric, prepare us and make us ready to be your people. Thank you. Amen. Good 
Today, we begin a new series preaching through the Gospel of Luke. Right at the beginning of the Gospel, Luke makes his objective clear. Verse 1, he says, I want to compile a narrative, a, a history of the things, meaning the work, accomplished among us or in us. Like others before me, he says, I want to tell the story of Jesus, who he is, what he's done, and how that has changed me and others. I want to tell this story, this history, verse 2 says, just as those who were eyewitnesses from the beginning and became ministers of the word delivered it to us. Luke is letting us know that he is not an eyewitness of Jesus' earthly ministry. He did not see the resurrected Christ. He is a a, a second-generation Christian who heard the gospel from those who were, quote, eyewitnesses from the beginning. He's meaning the apostles there. That, that language of eyewitness from the beginning is the same kind of language that's used in Acts 1 when the original remaining 11 apostles uh, chose Matthias by lot to replace Judas. The apostles were the eyewitnesses. They, their primary responsibility, or a primary responsibility of an apostle, was to be an official, authoritative eyewitness of Jesus' resurrection. Lots of people saw the resurrected Christ. In 1 Corinthians 15, Uh, Paul tells us that Jesus appeared to well over 500 brethren at one time. Yet, as we read Acts 1, particularly verses 2 and 3, Jesus' post-resurrection focus is on the apostles who he chose. And he presented himself alive to them, the apostles, appearing to them for 40 days and teaching them about the kingdom of God. As the official eyewitnesses of the resurrection, the the apostles are the ones who became the ministers of the word, as our text says this morning. It is their apostolic witness that is the content of our New Testament. God speaks to us today through their authoritative witness. God spoke through the apostles themselves or their close associates in recording the New Testament. Luke is not an eyewitness. He is a convert, likely under the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Paul is an apostle by virtue of seeing the resurrected Christ on the road to Damascus. In Galatians 1, Paul says that he received the gospel 
through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul was taught by Christ. And it was Christ who called and made him an apostle. Luke is an associate of Paul's. In Philemon 24, Paul calls Luke a fellow laborer in the gospel. It seems that Luke joins Paul in his ministry beginning in Acts 16. As Paul goes to Philippi, Luke, the author of Acts as well, begins to include himself by referring to Paul and his associates as we and us. Now, Luke may not be an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ, but he writes the Word of God, and he is an eyewitness of the power of God in the gospel. His life has been changed by God as he heard the gospel preached. In verse 1, he writes, this is a history of the things accomplished in us. This is a work that God did in us. How? How did God accomplish this work through the gospel? It is the power of God unto salvation. Luke is bearing witness of what he does know, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God that changed his life. The wonderful thing is, you and I can do the same thing, can't we? We may not have a vision of the resurrected Christ, And we're certainly not going to write Scripture like Luke did. But like Luke, we have heard and we have believed those authoritative eyewitness accounts. And we can share that truth, that gospel, and give testimony to the fact that we are a different people. That the gospel has changed us forever. Luke writes as a historian, but his profession is a medical doctor. In Colossians 4, Paul calls him the beloved physician. Luke is educated and trained to make keen and accurate observations. He's the perfect person to write a historical account. God had providentially prepared him for this very task. As Luke trained to be a doctor, he didn't know what God had in store for him. But God was preparing him. God had already worked in him and was moving in his life situation, preparing him for the purposes that he had for him. The same is true for us. 
God is working in your life right now. And he is preparing you for the things that he wants to do. In Ephesians 2, it says that we're saved by faith and not works. And then it tells us that we are to walk in the good works that God prepared beforehand for us. That God has saved us and he has given us purposes. We may not know what they are exactly all the time, but all we have to do is believe and obey and know that God is working and that he has already prepared us for what we're about to do. Now, we may not understand all the details of life. There may be times that we ask, why? Why did I lose a job? Or why didn't I get into the college that I wanted? Or maybe something more dire. Like when someone betrays us and we don't understand Or we go to the doctor just for a checkup and we leave with bad news. Why? We all experience suffering at various levels and at different times. But our hope and confidence is in the God who loves us and has ordained our life for us. Knowing that he is working through us. Be assured that if you are in Christ, what may seem purposeless to you, or even bad, God uses for your good and for his glory to build his kingdom. God is in the details of life in ways that we don't even begin to understand and perhaps can never fully comprehend this side of eternity. And so Luke was prepared for this task. And so Luke writes as a historian, and he writes in verse 3, to the most excellent Theophilus. We don't know who Theophilus is. Uh, The fact that he calls him the most excellent uh, Theophilus could mean that that is simply a title. That he is a, a Roman official. However, it could also be his name. Theophilus was a common name among Romans and Greeks and Hebrews. But there's also a a, a third option, which really isn't the majority opinion, but I find it fascinating, is that Luke is speaking to us directly. Theophilus means beloved of God or friend of God. All who are in Christ 
are Theophilus, a friend of God. And so is Luke writing not just to an individual, but directly to us? Is that who he has in mind, the church of Christ? Regardless, God has preserved this writing for the church. It is for us because it is Scripture. And so God does speak to us through Luke's gospel. And Luke says that he's writing Theophilus, verse 4, so that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Luke's purpose mirrors John's purpose in his gospel, where John says in uh, John twenty thirty, these things are written, the things about Jesus, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are written to convict and affirm the truths about Jesus in our hearts. Luke writes to build confidence and strengthen faith in the veracity and the historicity of what they know about Jesus and what we know. All of Scripture is breathed out by God, and so it's all God's eternal word. And so it all has power. It all has God's power behind it. But the Gospels, which tell the story of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, is the very heart of our salvation. It's what we're called to believe. And so God works through the Gospels not only to produce faith in us, but to also confirm that faith in us. And so, as we read the Gospels for the umpteenth time, our hearts and our minds focus on who Jesus is and what he has done. And the result is our faith is renewed and our souls are fed on the glory of Christ. Throughout church history, God has combated the doubts of believers through the power of the Gospels themselves. Let me give you just one example. One of the most profound defenders of the Christian faith in the 20th century was uh, Gresham Machen. Whether you know his name or not, uh, you are indebted to him as God worked through him. As those in the church began to gain power, those who did not believe that Jesus was the Son of God or believed in the supernatural, Machen stood against those individuals to fight for the faith. He was mocked and he suffered personal loss to ensure 
that churches would have gospel preaching pastors. He died in 1937 at the age of 55, and it made national news. And as he died, his last words were thanking God for his salvation. He was heralded as an example of Christian faith. Everyone thought of him as rock solid, unwavering. But that was not always the case. In 1905, as a young seminary student, he traveled to Germany. And in Germany, he studied under some brilliant theologians, men who, whose minds uh, just overwhelmed him. But some of those men were men that did not believe that Jesus was God or that his resurrection really happened. They denied the gospel claims that Machen believed, and Machen began to waver in his faith. He began to doubt the Bible. Were the gospel claims about Jesus true? When he came home, he wasn't sure what to do when he came back to the States, and so he just determined to read and reread the gospels again. And as he read the Gospels, the Spirit of God worked through the Gospels to convince Machen of the certainty of the biblical claims that all the Bible is true. And he spent the rest of his life committed to defending it. The gospel strengthened the certainty of our faith, and so we are never so mature that we shouldn't read the gospels. We read them so fast sometimes because we know the stories. But the gospels are part of the power of God, that he works in our life not just to save us, but to mature us and to confirm us in the faith. And so Luke writes this historical account to strengthen the faith of Theophilus. And so Luke originates this history at the beginning, but not with the birth of Christ but really with the end and the close of the Old Testament. Luke begins with the birth of John the Baptist, who is the last of the Old Testament prophets. The prophet's job was to point to Christ that was to come. The law and the prophets are fulfilled in Christ. They anticipated his coming as the hope of God's people. John the Baptist is uh, the greatest Old Testament prophet simply because he's the one that gets to point directly to Jesus. 
He gets to announce the arrival of the long-awaited Messiah. He's the one that gets to say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There he is. And with him comes the kingdom of God. What Luke does there is is remind us that God works through history. You see, what we have to keep in mind is that when John appeared as the last Old Testament prophet, it had been 400 years since God had last spoken to his people through a prophet. God spoke in his word. They had the Old Testament scriptures, but God had not spoken them to them through a prophet since Malachi. 400 years before. That's a long time. 400 years. 400 years ago is when the pilgrims came over on the Mayflower. That's 15 generations. If you're one of the uh, 35 million people in America that claim a, 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 an ancestry to the pilgrims, that means that was your, and i got to use my fingers for this, that was your great, 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 great grandparents. That's a lot of waiting. Four hundred years of silence. And the amazing thing is that God just picks up the story as though nothing has happened. He picks up the story without losing a beat. Look what he says about John in verse 17 of our text. John will go before him, before the Christ, in the the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. That's Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6. That's what Luke's quoting there. It's the last two verses of the Old Testament. It's been 400 years and God picks up the story right where he left it off. That is awesome. Or maybe frustrating, depending upon your perspective. We get impatient, don't we? 400 years... Come on. But God doesn't worry. And God is not rushed. 
God's plans and purposes unfold in the ways and the times that he's chosen. The world may ask today, where is your God? We've been telling the world, Jesus is coming again for 2,000 years. And the world wants to know where he's at. And Peter tells us in his second letter, uh, do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Christ will return, but at the time that God has planned. But too often, whether it's talking about uh, the, the return of Christ or, or even our, our personal prayers, we act more like the world. We pray and then get mad when we don't get an answer right away. I asked God for it two weeks ago. Learn to trust. Learn to entrust yourself to the good and perfect plan of a heavenly Father that loves you. He hears your prayers, and he answers them in the best timing of all. Luke describes John's birth by giving us a a time and a situation. Look at verses 5 to 7. This occurred in the days of Herod, king of Judah. For there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abiah. He had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and the statutes of the Lord. But they had no children, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years." They were an ordinary, God-fearing couple, both from a priestly lineage. And I'm sure that they enjoyed happiness in their home, the kind of happiness that comes when a husband and wife are righteous before God. But they had no children. In any culture, infertility can be an aching disappointment. Uh, And that ache and that pain is often intensified by questions and the insensitivity of others. But in this culture, in Hebrew culture, at this time, barrenness was not just an ache, it was a disgrace. Some even considered it a a punishment from God. In verse 25, Elizabeth calls her barrenness her reproach, 
her shame. And I'm sure she and her husband had become accustomed to the smug look of others and the whispers of there must be something wrong with them. It carried a moral stigma because in Jewish thinking, barrenness was not the fate of righteous people. And in verse 7, it tells us that this couple were advanced in years, so the hope of children had long passed. And it's probable that they even stopped praying about it years before. But God's providential blessing was on this family. Zechariah had been chosen to burn incense during a sacrifice. He was chosen by lot, meaning uh, uh, chance. Uh, Thinking it was just good luck. Uh, But it wasn't. God had purpose in his being chosen. And this is what it tells us. Uh, It says in verse 8 and 9, Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of people were praying outside at the hour of incense. According to Exodus 29, a sacrifice of a two-year-old lamb was to be made twice a day. Once in the morning and once at twilight. And during that time of the perpetual offering, the people were outside praying to God and a priest would go into the holy place and burn incense. And that incense represented the prayers of God's people rising up to God. At this time, there were about 18,000 priests. And so they were divided into subgroups, into divisions. And each division served at the temple for one week, twice a year. When a, a division served, who got to serve in the temple, to go actually go inside the temple, was uh, chosen by lot, by chance. Even so, there were some priests who never got to do this. It was considered a great privilege to offer incense in the temple. And tradition said that once you had the opportunity to do it, you would never do it again. So that others might have a chance. So this choosing of Zechariah was the greatest honor he had ever experienced. He had to be excited. He would actually get to walk into the temple of God and see the holy place 
of the temple. Perhaps he thought, I have to, I have to take every second in. I want to remember every detail so I can tell Elizabeth. And as he walks in, I'm sure there had to be adrenaline pumping in his heart. And he looks to his left, and, and there is uh, the table of showbread. And, and to his right is, is the golden candle stand. And right in front of him is the altar of incense. And behind the altar is the scarlet and gold veil. The entryway into the Holy of Holies where the Shekinah glory dwelt. The throne room of God on earth. And in verse 10 to 12 it says, As the people were praying, an angel appears. Verse 19 tells us it's Gabriel. And Zechariah was afraid. Verse 13, but the angel said to him, do not be afraid, for your prayers have been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. What prayer is being answered? Now, he mentions a son, and he tells him to call him John, so immediately we think it must be the couple's prayer for a child, and I agree that it is an answer to that long-forgotten prayer. But is it also an answer to another prayer? Verse 5 tells us that all of this happens in the days of Herod, king of Judah, or Judea. Herod is not the true king. Herod isn't even Jewish. He was placed in power by Caesar Augustus. He is a pawn of Rome, and he is a constant reminder of Roman oppression. Zechariah is offering incense at the time of sacrifice, and he and all the people of Israel outside are praying for what? Israel's salvation. And in the Jewish mind, salvation would be the arrival of the Messiah who overthrows Rome and he sits on David's throne and he returns Israel to the glory days of David and Solomon. That would be the vision of salvation Zechariah had in mind. And he would also know that the, the same angel Gabriel appeared to Daniel at the time of sacrifice and prayer when Israel was in exile under Babylonian rule. Gabriel promised Daniel a restoration by an anointed one. 
could this answered prayer be both a son to this couple and the promised redemption by the Messiah? Yes and yes. Zechariah and Elizabeth would have their son, and that son would be the prophetic voice announcing the Messiah's arrival. Isn't it the the wonderful thing about that? Is that God answers individual prayers as he answers corporate prayers. Because as the people of God, our lives are tied together. And so what blesses you blesses the church. And what blesses the church, the people of God, will inevitably bless your life as well. God answers individual and corporate prayers together beyond our limited comprehension. What Paul tells us in, in, in Ephesians 3 that God is able to do abundantly beyond all that we can ask or think according to the power that is at work within us. How did this elderly priest respond? Verse 18, he said, How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. Isn't that just like us? We believe in God's power. We don't doubt that God can do stuff. We doubt that he's going to do stuff in our life. We doubt his word. Zechariah knew God had given Abraham and Sarah a son, Isaac, when they were old and she was barren. God can do anything, but would God give him and his wife a son, even though God said that's what he was going to do? You and I often believe in God's work in the lives of his children. And we believe it wholeheartedly for others. But we don't believe it for ourselves. We don't doubt God's power. We doubt his awareness and his care for us. We doubt that God is aware of who we are, because we feel so insignificant. God, you know, God's, you know, he's managing the whole universe. Does he really know and love me? Will he answer me? Will he be true to his word for me? God says... He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do you believe him? God says the the guilt and the power of sin is broken. 
and that you are a new creation in Christ and you can live a holy life. Do you believe that? Or do you make excuses and think it's just not true because it's so hard? God says his power is perfected in weakness. Do we know that is true? The problem problem is when we're weak, we're strong. But when we're weak, we don't feel strong, do we? That's the whole point. When we're weak, we feel weak. We don't feel strong. But God says, when you are weak, When you are dependent on me, when your heart cries out to me, and I am your hope and your rescue, then you are strong. That's power. But we judge reality based upon how we feel, not upon what God says. And so shouldn't we repent of unbelief? Lord, I know your word says this, and and I believe it for others. Help me to believe it for me. Help me to be totally convinced that what you say is true for me. The story of John the Baptist in every biblical account demonstrates that God works in human history. History is not random. It's not purely cyclical. History is linear. It's going somewhere, and God is the one who is taking it there because he has purposes in human history. That's not just true of the Bible. That's true of your life. In Acts 17, Paul tells us that God made us all, and he determined the times and the places in which we live. And so God who determined your life and where you would live and the circumstances surrounding your existence has purpose for you in this time and in this place. And if he has made you part of this church, then you have purpose here. Our being here together this morning is not an accident. God has gifted you in unique ways to serve his church for the common good. Christian, if God has providentially placed you here and gifted you, then he wants you involved. We all want to do great things for God. But often those great things are ordinary and and even sometimes mundane. Do you want to do great things for God? Parents, read the Bible to your children. Love your spouse. Children, you want to do great things for God? Obey your parents. Study hard. Develop your gifts. Follow Christ when others 
mock you. Singles, retirees, people with more time than some of us, play golf. (laughs) Amen. Drink coffee. But do it with others. Use that time to build relationships with those in the church that you might encourage those who are in the church. Meet and talk with younger Christians. Invest in the next generation for the glory of God. Would you like to see not just your children and your grandchildren in the church? Do you want to see your great-grandchildren saved? Then invest in your kids and your church now. Mark Dever, in his book, Discipling, says as he invests in people, he's, he's leaving behind Time bombs of grace. He won't be here, but he is praying and discipling those around him, not just for their sake, but for the sake of the generations to come that he will never see. All of us can take time to build relationships with our neighbors, even the ones that aggravate us. Because that's a God-ordained opportunity. Be kind and loving, even when others mistreat us. And look for opportunities to have gospel conversations. Know that the, the God of history works in the ordinary and the mundane issues of life to accomplish his good purposes and to build his kingdom. Let us pray. Father... We thank you that you are always working and that you have promised to use us in mighty ways. And so this morning we ask that your people would be convinced about your word, would be convinced about what you say, and that we would trust what you're doing even when we don't understand it. That we would know that you are preparing us to do a good work that you have set before us. Father, help us to walk by faith and not by sight. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.